If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Ruth. There we resume our study. Last week, if you were with us, uh, Richard led us through a view of fatherhood as we prepared to take the Lord's Supper together, as we normally do. We take a break from our normal exposition and look at something that is in keeping with the table. Uh, This morning, we find ourselves back in the book of Ruth and the Old Testament. Remember, it's right in between Judges and 1 Samuel. Uh, We find out we're in the last chapter of Ruth, and if you've been with us going through this study, you know that we've kind of taken our time and uh, taken some opportunities to stop and, and really smell the roses, as it were, of what is happening in this Old Testament book, because Uh, one of the shorter books in the Old Testament, and yet one of the books that packs a rather solid punch in terms of what is the purpose of Ruth. Well, it is to tell us a story, right? It is is to communicate some details about Boaz and Ruth, but it's also meant to establish a pattern of redemption, of what it means to be redeemed, who needs redeeming, who is fit to do the redeeming, and what through what line will ultimate redemption come. And so this is not an arbitrary book. It's not an arbitrary story. It's not of little value in the grand scope of the anthology that is the Old Testament. It is very, very intentional and purposeful and meant to deliver what I would call a knockout punch with regard to a theology of God, a theology of redemption, a theology of neediness, right? We don't often hear about a theology of neediness, but lest we get confused, we are created needy people. We are created in weakness to be needy. And so what is a developed theology of neediness? A developed theology of neediness would state that after creation, which God made all things good and humanity fell in sin, we created a context for ultimate need for Christ. And so one of the very definitions of what it means to be human is to be needy. And so the idol of strength, which so often lures us in in thinking that we're stronger than we are, is a lie. It is a lie because it creates a context where I can have a Christless religion because, say, I keep these eight pillars, or say, I keep these five principles and my life is good. Beloved, if we have a theology that has no need for salvation, it is a bad, false, wrong theology. We need to have a sense of how needy we are. And so what is one of the values of the book of Ruth? Is it puts that in view. How refreshing is it to see two women who we would never remember who they were if this story wasn't recorded? And what is their primary message? Is we need something that we can't provide. And beloved, whether you're a male or female, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're strong or weak, short or tall, more rotund or skinnier, (laughs) all right, it's okay. (laughs) We need Jesus. We need Jesus. It doesn't matter what we are. And so with those thoughts in mind, let us turn our attention back to this narrative that is pointing us to the one whom we need and it is the Redeemer. This morning we're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved of God, 
This is God's infallible, perfect, inerrant word. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion in Milan. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Milan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So is the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, we're thankful for Your Word, and we're grateful for the truth therein and for the rich beauty, the simplicity, and yet the wealth of love and depth that lie therein. Minister to us this morning. Transform us, we pray. Use this time to make us new. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. You might consider it sacrilege for me to mention the movie It's a Wonderful Life in the month of August. I find it somewhat sacrilegious to mention a Christmas movie in the dead of a historic heat wave. And yet, it is one of my favorite movies of all times. As a family, we watch it every year, and if we're lucky, we see it twice. Uh, We love the movie. I grew up hating it thinking it was boring and all that was wrong with the world when we had to sit down and watch that movie. Of course, until I grew up and lived a little and have enough life experience to realize it is a wonderful movie. And please, please don't mess it up by trying to watch the color version. Now, if I'm stepping on your toes, I only slightly apologize. But mostly, you should watch it in black and white, the way that that movie is intended to be viewed. That is one of my favorite movies, and one of my favorite characters in cinema history is George Bailey. If you don't like George Bailey, you're not a human being, right? You're a robot. You've got to love George Bailey. George Bailey isn't perfect, and he's not portrayed as a perfect man in the movie. In fact, what's beautiful about George Bailey is him and all his perfections, or imperfections rather, are on display. You see this guy, and what makes him so relatable is he's a dude. He's a regular dude. But what is it that separates George Bailey from someone like Mr. Potter or other people? He's a man who understands the beauty of what it means to give, to love, to share. Now, I'm going I'm to sum all those things up with one word that's in our vocabulary, to bless. It is an English word. It is in Hebrew, the word Baruch, and and in Greek, the word uh, makario, makarios. 
we have a concept for blessing. And what we see in George Bailey is someone who acts, actually sums it up in one individual. That's what makes him such a draw. Even if you don't love the movie, surely you could say you love George Bailey. And the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. What is it that makes life wonderful? Well, it's not Mr. Potter. Mr. Potter who has more money than anybody else in town. Sam Wainwright, who is really funny, his life isn't wonderful like George's is. George is not the richest. He's not the best. But he is one of the most blessed individuals that you meet. Why? Because he's a man who gives blessing. That's how the movie portrays him. He is a man who blesses, therefore he is a rich man. He is a blessed man primarily because he lived his life as a blessing to others. And so you get it. I'm ruining the movie if you've never seen it. But at the end of it, when he gets to see what life would be like for so many other people had he not been born, it's enough to, to reduce a normal feeling person down to tears when you realize the smallest pebble in somebody's pond has a ripple effect. We never know how much we've been a blessing to somebody else when we focus on just being a blessing to other people. And how does that look? You show me, how, you show me one life and I can give you a hundred scenarios of what it might mean. It might mean generosity with our finances. It may mean generosity with our time. It may mean going out of our way to do that extra little thing for somebody else because they like it or they need it. It may be a hundred other things, but it's opportunities to be a blessing rather than looking for opportunities to be blessed. When we think about the modern mindset, what I'm telling you seems counterintuitive. The more blessed life is the one who looks for ways to serve and bless others. We live in a culture that says, no, 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 really? And, and, and culturally, I'm going I'm to interject this. We've almost robbed that word. The word blessing is a lot like the word love. What does it really mean anymore? Well, so often in Christian circles, we can associate it with the prosperity gospel preachers who ask us to sow this amount of money and we'll get our blessing back. That's not biblically what blessing is. What blessing is biblically is living our lives before the face of God, quorum Deo, with an opportunity to serve God and serve His people. And so it seems counterintuitive to us in modern culture who are taught, modern man is taught, blessing is, is seized or sought But blessing is something that we experience when we are living to bless somebody else. And it does seem counterintuitive. But here's the thing, and I want to say this. Just because we are a blessing to other people, it does not automatically guarantee we are going to be blessed in return. If that's what you're doing, you're doing it wrong. If you're working for a wage to get your just reward, then you or I, if we are doing that, we've just become the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Not the particle son. It was the whole guy. The prodigal son, the, 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 the older brother, all these years I've slaved for you, he tells the father, and you never even gave me a young goat. In other words, I've blessed you to be blessed and returned. And the father says, well, all I had was yours. You were always privy to the blessing what were you doing to bless other people? Beloved, that's, that's the thing. Blessing leads to blessing. That's the title that you see 
Print it in your bulletin. Blessing leads to blessing. Giving blessing doesn't guarantee that we receive blessing here and now. But what do the Proverbs say? Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. The one who waters will himself be watered. Now, that doesn't always mean you're going to get exactly what you give, but it does mean that in God's economy, God is watching. And sometimes the richest blessing we have is sharing in the pain, the struggle, the joy, the laughter, the life, the love, the hardship of someone else. I often find that when I need most from God, it's acts of service and opportunities to serve that help me through the trials of life. Perhaps you're similar. Now, I don't always want to do it. Right? When I'm down in the depths and the doldrums, it's not like I will say, let me go serve somebody else. I don't, it's not that my flesh wants to do that, but I have found joy and grace and hope and healing there. When we look at Ruth, it's a book of blessing, it's a book of grace, it's a book of love, it's a book of redemption, it's all these things combined. And, and Boaz and Ruth both find blessing, the blessing of God, and they're both, how are we introduced to these two characters? We are introduced to both of them as blessing somebody else. We, we meet Ruth who just says from the very beginning, I want to be a blessing to Naomi. Boaz decides, well, I want to bless Ruth because look at how much of a blessing she's being to Naomi and so forth and so on. So you see these two characters and they're both marked by their desire to be a blessing to other people. And so these two people who live to be a blessing, they do find blessing. And so when we think about what does it mean What is the whole rhythm of blessing? Well, true blessing is the outflow of being a blessing or giving blessing to other people. And again, I want us to to seize this word back because it's a beautiful word. I don't don't want us to have any sort of connotations of of bad theology or bad biblical teaching. I want us to understand that uh, in the Beatitudes, Jesus uses the word blessed is the one or blessed is so-and-so or blessed is so-and-so because there is a, there's, a, there's a real richness to saying we are a blessed people. Why? Well, for two reasons, really. One, because we are identified as those loved by God, His people, His bride, His redeemed. And two, we are a blessed people because we are compelled to live our lives being a blessing to other people. And beloved, sometimes that's going to be in super spiritual ways, and sometimes it's going to be in super pragmatic ways. And the super pragmatic way is not any less God-honoring than the super spiritual way. Because sometimes we need someone to proclaim the Word to us, and sometimes we need somebody to swing a hammer. And both honor God. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea here, it's this that God is a blessing to those who bless, that God is a blessing to those who bless. When we break down this passage, really it breaks down pretty cleanly. Uh, 7 through 10 is is giving us the the context of the situation, and 11 and 12 really do record kind of a prayer, a benediction, as it were. Um, And so Jesus, or the New Testament, reports this idea that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so the bigger blessing is in how we give and what we give and in opportunities to give than receiving, though 
those of us who've received blessing are grateful for those as well. But giving a blessing is crucial. It's a crucial part of the Christian life. Now, when we come into this paragraph, of course, we're, we're getting back into it here in the middle. Verse 7 is, is an explanatory note. Now, this was the custom in former times, in earlier times in Israel. Why is it telling us this? The reason it's telling you this was the custom in former times is because even the writer anticipates the reader, even the original audience, might not fully understand what's going on here. There's a custom at work. So this is a historical note. This is a, documenting a ceremony of concern, or concerning rather, redeeming and exchanging. So to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Now, it's interesting. Why? Why this whole, this whole ceremony? Well, a lot of what we would say about it is speculative because we don't know. This is, this is, you don't read about this in other places. This is an interesting historical note. But why the sandal, especially with regards to land allotments? Well, if you think about land and feet, if you are standing on a plot of land, that is symbolic of saying, this is my land, this is my domain, this is what I rule. By sliding off the sandal and handing it to another, you're handing that person authority over that land. So now you have this symbolic act of I'm giving you domain in this land, charge over this portion, rule over this field for you to do with as you will. So the foot will no longer rule the land. It is a relinquishing of authority. This is important because authority is being handed to Boaz to be redeemer, to do the very thing that both Ruth and Naomi need. And so verse 7 really is explanatory. Verse 8, so the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. Express command. And he drew off his sandal. There's an urgency here. And you know what I love is whether the man is aware of it or not. What is the urgency? Well, I mean, it's just the Hebrew tense for urgency or command. But there's a yielding happening right now. The man who is not God's man is yielding to the man who is. There's a proper redeemer here, and it's not the unnamed individual, not Mr. So-and-so that said in the previous paragraph. It's Boaz, the named one. And so this unnamed character is yielding to God's man in this moment. Do you see what's happening here is if you look at the details of the story, both men who had opportunity to redeem were in situations where they actually could redeem the land. One man opts not to for reasons not mentioned. Most commentators think it's selfishly motivated, and that may be. But Boaz has been blessed by God, and what does he do here? He takes God's blessing and he uses it to bless another person. In fact, Beloved, not just a person, because remember, small pond, little pebble, ripple effect. Boaz, I doubt, had foresight to understand exactly what this move of redemption was going to do in the history of humanity. We'll read later on in chapter 4 about the genealogy that leads to David, that leads to Jesus. 
So Boaz is taking this opportunity to bless, and it will be a blessing to everyone in this room who calls Christ Lord. Why do we remember Boaz? Because his small act of kindness ripples into eternity. And if you call Jesus King this morning, Boaz has a say in your story. So we have this, Boaz is blessing Ruth. He brought to fruition all the things that Ruth needed, that Naomi needed, that Elimelech needed, and so forth and so on. Now, it continues. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malan. And then also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Milan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate a name for the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses today. So what you have here, what is Boaz saying? What is he elucidating for us? This is a good redemption. This redemption is in keeping with the law and it's doing exactly what these women needed it to do. In other words, this is not something that's just selfishly motivated. This is not something that just works for one side. This is a good redemption. It's righteous. Boaz shows what is righteous in his grand display of grace. Beloved, it's easy sometimes for Christians, and I don't hear it often, but I do hear it from time to time, where people try to pit righteousness with grace. They try to make gracious people seem as if they struggle with righteousness and righteous people as if they struggle to be gracious. That is false. If someone is understanding the concept of righteousness, they're going to be the most gracious people you will ever meet. And someone who is super-duper gracious, it's not because they have no concept of righteousness. It's because they do understand that but only for the grace of God they would be abandoned and turned out that the, the righteousness they see in Christ has been imputed to them by grace. And so when we see Boaz and he has this, this super sense of righteousness and a super sense of grace, it should not be shocking to us. It should be that when we see someone who, who wants to do what is right but also be gracious, that that has to be the combination that God wants to work in us because we don't get to pick one or the other. It's not okay for someone to say, hey, well, they're really righteous now. They're kind of a jerk of a person, but they're really righteous. It's like, no, they're not. And it's not okay for someone to say, hey, they really struggle to be righteous. They love and their grace is huge. They just have no concept of right and wrong. That's not grace. It's called antinomianism, and it's a sin. And Christ died to redeem that sin as well. So when we, when we want to think about righteousness and grace, the only way we can think of them is together. Like, I don't know, let's see, Jesus comes to mind, right? Jesus comes to mind of someone who could, who could say, are there any left who condemn you? Well, then neither do I condemn you. Well, then what does he say? Go and sin no more. Grace, righteousness. Boaz heralds these things. He speaks technically of the land, that he's acquired the land that was Elimelech's, that was Kilion's, that was Milan's, that would have passed on to Ruth had her marriage worked. 
and what he's doing. He's buying the land. He's not buying the land outright for in perpetuity. He's buying the use of the land until either the, per, the rightful family can buy it back or the year of Jubilee when it is returned to the family. I've read through those laws earlier on in the book of Ruth. I won't go back to them. That's exactly what Boaz is doing. He's buying the opportunity to farm the land for a time. But in this particular case, and this is not always common, he is acquiring Ruth. He gets Ruth with the land. Now, I want us to remember, he gets the land, but he gets the wife. And, and this land will not ultimately be Boaz's. The first son that Ruth and Boaz have will not ultimately be Boaz's. It will be Milan's son. That's the way the Leveret marriage worked, is when a husband died, a brother, redeemer, or family member would marry the widow, would have a wife with the widow, and devote that first child to the husband's line so that the husband's name, it says it in this text, would not be cut off from the land because this had inheritance implications. So can you grasp what Boaz is doing here? He's paying for land that won't be his. He's marrying a woman, and ha- a woman and having a child that technically won't be his. Can we see the grace at work? Can we see the sacrifice that the Redeemer makes here? What I, I love, he, they, they talk about it here, uh, so perpetuate, or that the name of the dead might not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Boaz wants to establish the name. He wants the name to stand. And look, they're in the gate. Beloved, you can't get away from the covenant promise, the promise of life and love and hope and salvation that Boaz wants to do. But you, you want to you know what's interesting here. This is just a little side note. The links that Boaz goes to to perpetuate the name of the dead, if when you look at this in perpetuity, <laughs> it's never Milan's name that you find. It's Boaz's. It's Boaz and Ruth. We can see the blessing of God on this man who sought to be a blessing to make sure we didn't forget his name. This one who stood in the gate for the good and, 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 and prosperity of another, who took on the burdens of the dead so that the living might flourish. God has said, that's the name you'll remember. And that's the name we do remember. We remember Boaz. We remember Ruth. I doubt if I hadn't told you that his, her husband's name was Milan, you might not ever remember it. I might not remember it. But you know what I love about the story? If we can fast forward to the New Testament, what we're looking at is exactly what Jesus has done. He's rescued us in our weakness. He has put a name on us that we didn't deserve. He has walked with us through the covenant or through the hardships of life that we might know His nearness and His covenant promise. Beloved, this is the gospel. Well, Brad, what do you mean by that? Oh, we hear the gospel all the time. Here's what I mean, that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him that is in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Because when we look at Ruth and Naomi, they were destitute, they were broken, they were a sad lot, and if you are sitting in this room, that either describes you now or describes what you were. 
And God in his mercy sent a redeemer to buy us back from the depths of death and despair that we might bear a name that lives in perpetuity. That when we come to the gates of life, they will say, we know you because we see the name of Christ on you. This story is rich for that reality as it compels us to think. Boaz gives his life so that another may flourish. And here's where I think that God blesses us in so many different ways. In, 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 in this country, in America in particular, we have more material blessing than we really know what to do with. But really, the blessing of God is His presence. It's His redemption. And the question we ask ourselves is, is what are we doing with that? Are we burying our talent in the ground, hoping not to lose it? Are we allowing the blessing of God to flow through us to be a blessing to other people? Beloved, you don't have to have the most radical testimony. You don't have to have the biggest bank account. You don't have to have the the most life skills. What you really need is a sense of your own brokenness and wholeness in Christ a sense of relationship and desire to love other people, and the willingness to do it. Very simple. Boaz is a great example in this. Well, this paragraph really kind of, it comes to culmination here. Uh, I mean, we're on the downside, we're on the climax, but in this particular uh, uh, paragraph where we are, I should say resolution, not climax, Verses 11 and 12, then all the people were at the gate and the elders who were at the gate and the elders said, we're witnesses. In other words, we're, we're bearing witness that this is good, this is right, this is in keeping with the law, everything is done above board. We are witnesses. And then it gets into the prayer. It gets into what I would call a benediction, a, a pronouncement of blessing, literally a good word. Three things are actually expressed here. I'm just going to read them in succession. I'll come back to them. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is how this particular scene at the gate kind of comes to a close with this pronouncement of blessing, this benediction. When you look at the witnesses, as I said a moment ago, they verify the transaction. Everything is right. Everything is as it should be. It's above board. But you know what I love about this? Do you know what the subtle thing that we take away from this is? Is how public the redemption is. So that When Naomi and Ruth present their need to Boaz, Boaz proclaims it at the city gate. There is no trying to hush it down or keep it on the side so that nobody gets embarrassed. And I don't like embarrassing people. I don't like being embarrassed. But what I love about the beauty of this display is that their weakness isn't hidden. It's for all to see. So that all the community can see what it means to be redeemed. Beloved, it's okay to walk with a limp. It really is. It's okay to walk with a limp. It's okay to be imperfect. It's okay to not have it together. Now, <laughs> we don't always need to know every bit of your dirty laundry, 
Right? There are, let's, let's, let's learn a word called discretion. There are times and places. But it's okay for people to see that we are needy and in need of redemption and that we live dependent on the reality that we are redeemed. This is public, and I love that it's public. These witnesses verify, yes, they need to be redeemed, and here's how it's done. Now everybody sees what it means to be redeemed in brokenness. Let everybody see that in your life. I try to let everybody see it in mine. But here's three things that they pray or that they ask that the Lord would do for Boaz and Ruth. First is most notably and, and, and most common is posterity. She just, the, the, may, they, may Ruth be like Rachel and Leah, or Leah and Rachel. And you know that, of course, Jacob, uh, Rachel was the wife Jacob wanted, and Leah is the wife that Jacob got, and then he got Rachel. But through God's mercy, Israel was kind of born through Jacob and, and Rachel and Leah, and of course, um, Bill, uh, well, I'm not even going to try to remember all the names, but anyway, through their um, concubines. But they're asking that Ruth be like Rachel and Leah. What are, what, what are they praying? Very simply, she'd have an abundant womb, that she would produce children that they're getting at an Old Testament principle of what it means to have a full quiver. We live in a day and an age where children are thought of or talked about as if they're distractions or if they are nuisances or if they make a home or a woman's body unsafe for crying out loud. Can women's be, I mean women's, can children be a nuisance? You're dang right. I love all four of my children, and there are times when they get on my nerves. And I get on their nerves too, by the way. I probably get on their nerves worse than they get on mine. Can children and childbearing be hard? Well, of course it can. Does it, does it have risk? Of course it does. But, beloved, they're getting at this idea that having children is a reward from the Lord. And in 2023 in America, we do well to, to shout that from the rooftops. Children are valuable. They're a blessing. They are indeed one of the richest gifts that God has ever given me personally. But more than that, more than that, they're praying that Boaz and Ruth would have a household of righteous people. May you be like Leah and Rachel who gave us Joseph and even Judah. I know Judah had his struggles, but isn't it interesting that it was the tribe of Judah that God chose for the Redeemer to come through, which was Jesus Christ. So they don't just pray for posterity, though. They actually pray for prosperity. And in the Old Testament, prosperity is not a little jingle in your pocket. It may, it may mean that. It may have some of those implications. But really, what, what was prosperity? It was a strong family with a lasting legacy. Prosperity, proverbially speaking, is that our names in the gate are spoken with honor. That we live with integrity. That we live openly and righteously. That we might not be rich with money, but we are rich in faithfulness and character. Because all the money in the world 
cannot buy fidelity. It just cannot, and it will not. True wealth is in righteousness. Give me a poor man or woman with integrity over 10,000 rich men or women with none. Because integrity is a lasting currency that we pass on that does not fade. Parents, we should be praying for our children, praying for their spouses, praying for their friends, that they desire righteousness, integrity, honor, honesty, all the things that we all fail at from time to time. But we should earnestly seek. They pray for posterity. They pray for posterity. And because alliteration worked well here, they also pray for prominence. And may your house be like the house of Perez, or be renowned, rather, just above in, in verse 11 at the end of it, and be renowned in Bethlehem, that there be a legacy of leadership and flourishing. And it's interesting, right, that, that the author here mentions Tamar. You remember where Hezron and Perez came from was not Tamar's dead husband or his brother, but from her father-in-law. There is scandal all in this line, and what is the point? The point is to point us to the Redeemer who buys it all and redeems every last bit of it. Boaz is a sign marker to something bigger, just like Tamar and and Judah and David and Solomon and Moses and Abraham and Joseph and Daniel and Noah and Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all 12 of the minor prophets are all smaller signposts that are pointing to something much bigger. And his name is Jesus, the Redeemer of His people. And so they're praying, let your legacy be an enduring name in the land of the living. What does it mean? What does it mean to be a blessing? What is the recipient of blessing? The the recipient of blessing is the one who faithfully lives to be a blessing. Even the good things in life can become a testimony against us if we choose to live for self. Look, is having a good marriage good? You bet. Raising strong children, good godly children, good? You bet it is. But what if my good marriage becomes my only goal? What if having my kids not embarrass me becomes equated with righteous children? What do these good things become? They become idols. When if I'm living for my marriage to be exemplary but not really trying to love my wife, if I'm living for my children not to embarrass me, but not really trying to teach them godliness, if I'm living to be thought of as excellent at what I do, but with no sense of how it glorifies God, all these good things then become the enemy of our soul. The good thing is to know and love God and to live for His glory. The second good thing is to then take all that blessing and figure out how I can be a distributor of blessing. As I said a moment ago, the poorest can be infinitely more blessed than the richest if they cling to Christ. The blessed life is the life that finds its worth solely in Christ. At the end of It's a Wonderful Life, yes, spoiler alert, 
at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, George's brother Harry says to my brother George, the richest man in town. And you know what you see? It's not because of the mounds of money that people gave him. It's because of the amount of people in that house who said, George Bailey blessed our family. The richest man in town, George Bailey. We can't all be George Bailey, but we can all live to be a blessing to others. Boaz teaches us. Jesus teaches us. May we all follow their example. Please pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this word. God, even the technical aspects of it, and there is much technicality here. All these details are laid out and laid down for the express purpose of teaching us a fundamental lesson of just how far and how detailed your redemption actually goes and is that you do not leave us to ourselves, that you have bought and paid for your people. And Father, forgive us that we make light of it. Forgive us that we don't live knowing it. And forgive us, O oh Lord, when we act as if we deserve it. You have blessed us. May we be a blessing. Through Christ we pray. Amen.